will find in the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 22. I'll begin the reading at verse 7 of Luke chapter 22. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepared there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour had come, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. So far, the reading of God's holy word. We will now ask to listen with you to, to the confession of Lord's Day 29. I'm going to instead focus on two questions, the first one of, seven, of 28 and the last one of 29. So that's question 75 and question 79. The first question is, how does the Lord's Supper signify and seal to you that you share in Christ one sacrifice on the cross and in all his gifts? In this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of this broken bread and drink of this cup in remembrance of him. With this command he gave the, these promises first. As surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely was his body offered for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. And second, 
As surely as I receive from the hand of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord, as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely does he himself nourish and refresh our, my soul to eternal life with his crucified body and shed blood. And then question 79. Why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood, or the new covenant in his blood? And why does Paul speak of a participation in the body and blood of Christ? Christ speaks in this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us by this supper that as bread and wine sustain us in this temporal life, so his crucified body and shed blood are true food and drink for our souls to eternal life. But, even more important, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge first that through the working of the Holy Spirit, we share in his true body and blood as surely as we receive with our mouth these holy signs in remembrance of him. And second, that all his suffering and obedience are as certainly ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for our sins. We love our congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Reverend J. Verbruggen, in his book, Annotations to the Heidelberg Catechism, summarizes the questions and answers of Lord Day 28 and 29 as follows. Q&A 75 focuses on the signs and on the promises which are signified and sealed in the Lord's Supper. Q&A 76 focuses on the content of the promises. Q&A 78 or 77 focuses on the texts where those promises can be found. Q&A 78 focuses on what the connection between the sign and what is promised does not consist of. And Q&A 79 focuses on what the connection between the sign and what is promised does consist of. When you reflect on that for just a moment, you realize that there can be no doubt about it and no misunderstanding of it. The Catechism provides a detailed explanation of the Lord's Supper. It does that because in the days of the Reformation, this sacrament lay at the heart of much of the conflict, not only with the Church of Rome, but also among the Reformers. Now, it is not my intention in this sermon to look at all of the points mentioned as they are dealt with in these Lord's Days. Rather, I want to focus on what it is our Savior tells us about the Lord's Supper as he instituted it in the night of his betrayal. I'm going to speak on the Lord's Supper. I have three thoughts. Its institution its meaning, and its fruit. First of all, then, we will focus on the institution of the Lord's Supper. 
The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, says, The Lord Jesus, in the night when he was betrayed, took bread. Luke, you'll remember, tells us that Jesus and his disciples had eaten the Passover together. Luke recalls also that Jesus then said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That tells us that Jesus knew precisely what time it was. He knew that his time had come, the time that he would lay down his life for his own. But there had been one thing, one thing Jesus had earnestly desired to do before he would be led to his death. See, Jesus wanted for one last time to celebrate the Passover, that intensely covenantal feast. He earnestly wanted to celebrate that feast of the covenant one more time with his disciples in order that he might so, in that way, express and celebrate his covenantal unity with them, with his disciples. And see, that is when he then instituted the Lord's Supper, which you understand is the sacrament of the old covenant made new in him, in his blood. Luke makes that very clear. He makes a point of it to tell us that Jesus first celebrated the Passover. Yes, Luke tells us that Jesus concluded that Passover celebration with these words. I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Well now, it is, a, it is at that point in the Passover celebration that Jesus took bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, writes Luke, and likewise the cup after he had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus gave his disciples, his church, a new sign and seal of the covenant. And the fact that he did that in the context of the celebration of the Lord's Supper, of the Old Testament Passover, see, that is of great of awesome significance. Think of it. That tells us not only that a new sign and seal was taking the place of the old, but more importantly, that tells us that a new, the last, dispensation of God's grace was about to start. The time of shadows was coming to an end. 
The time of animal sacrifices would soon be a thing of the past. Soon now, the atonement would be accomplished for the Lamb of God, our Paschal Lamb, would be slain. See, that, that is the message of the institution of the Lord's Supper during or perhaps at the close of the Passover. The old, that is, the Passover, would be forever done with. Why? Well, because the new, the time of the new, the time of the Lord's Supper had come. But that's not all. Remember, the explanation of the Lord's Supper lies in the Passover. You see that the moment you ask and answer the question, what really was the meaning of the Passover? What did that feast of the covenant say to the children of the covenant? There are two things that require careful attention here. First of all this, the Passover lamb had first to be slaughtered, and its blood had then to be sprinkled. That is, first the sacrifice had to be offered in order that, that the atonement, in order that reconciliation between the Lord and his people might be accomplished. And then, afterwards, in the second place, if you will, then the lamb was eaten. Then, in other words, there was a meal, a supper, and in that meal lay the thought of fellowship, of communion with the Lord and with each other at the table. That, you understand, I guess, that was the very nature of that eating together. The Passover meal brought the people together for a time of intimate fellowship, a fellowship where not, they not only rejoiced before the Lord, but a fellowship, a time of fellowship, when also they celebrated the covenant bonds with each other and with the Lord. You understand? See, the people, the children of God's old covenant, celebrated what bound them together as the people of the Lord's own possession. To that end, they celebrated their fellowship with the Lord. That, you see, was first. He, the Lord God, he was the real host. After all, it, it was at his table they had gathered together. Then and so, there was also in the, in the second place, their fellowship, their communion with each other, when they rejoiced together in the goodness and in the mercy and in the compassion of the Lord God. Well, now, 
Those two things, the sacrifice and the mealtime, reconciliation and communion, those two things belonged together. The first one, the sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb, served as the foundation of the second, the fellowship. Remember it well, there was no fellowship possible without the sacrifice of the Lamb. But also, the atonement once made called for, yes, it demanded the fellowship. So it is, you see, that the Passover was, for Israel, the sign and the seal of their covenant relationship with the Lord, a relationship that was founded upon reconciliation, the forgiveness of sins. Those who were reconciled to the Lord, you see, could have fellowship with each other and with the Lord at the Passover table. To all such, he granted the blessing, the blessedness of being in his loving presence. But now, that, that is precisely what the Lord's Supper says also. Remember, it is the table of communion. That is, it is the table of fellowship between the Lord and us, his people, and of the people with each other. It is a fellowship based upon the atonement which was, which then soon would be accomplished by the Savior. Once that is clear, you begin to understand why it is the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper at the time of the Passover celebration. After all, the one was the fulfillment of the other. The old was passing away for the new had or was about to come. Well now, that is a thing the Lord signaled to his disciples on the night he was betrayed. Oh yes, that was a dark night. It was a dreadful night, but also it was the night of atonement. That night, oh yes, it speaks of evil and of betrayal, but also it speaks of love and of faithfulness. Because, you see, it was in that night that the true, the real Lamb of God was bound and led to the slaughter. So that word spoken by Isaiah came to fulfillment like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is dumb or is silent. So he, the Savior, the Paschal Lamb of God, did not open his mouth. You understand? He did that in order that forever thereafter his people might sit with him at his table and taste the fruit of his atoning sacrifice. See, that, that is the message of the signs. Think of it. Jesus took bread 
and wine. He did not take meat. After all, meat requires that an animal be slaughtered, that its blood be shed, that a sacrifice be made. But such a new sacrifice was and is not necessary for the Lord's table. After all, Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. No new sacrifice will ever again be required. Well, no, that is why our Savior took bread and wine. Bread, because it is a food that is known to all people. Wine, because it is, especially in the East, a popular drink known to quicken the heart. Bread and wine, see, for neither the one nor for the other is it necessary that blood be shed. Nevertheless, both point to the sacrifice Christ brought, to the blood atonement he shed. Think of it. Before the bread comes to us as bread, it was necessary not only that a field be plowed, the sod be broken, the seed sown, but that same seed, ah yes, that seed had to die before it could bear fruit. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And when that fruit, the grain, is then harvested, why then it is ground into flour. The kernels are broken, smashed, pounded to pieces before there is the flour that can be baked into bread. And see, all of that, not only the breaking of the bread, but also that that is a portrayal of the suffering and death of Christ. And so it is with the wine also. The grapes are pressed in a wine press. The juice of the grapes does not flow without the grapes being crushed, broken. So the wine becomes a symbol of the blood of Christ, which he shed on the cross. And the pouring out of the wine portrays in a touching way that the blood of the Lamb was poured out for our sins. You can't miss it. The signs, the bread and the wine, point to Golgotha. With every celebration of the Lord's Lord's Supper, our Savior says to us, As surely as you see with your eyes the bread of the Lord broken for you and the cup given to you, so sure it is that my body was offered and broken for you and my blood poured out for you on the cross. 
With that, I move to the second point, the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Why did Christ institute the Lord's Supper? Well, there can only be one answer to that question. The answer Christ himself gave when he said, do this in remembrance of me. So there can be no doubt about it. The Lord's Supper is a feast of remembrance. The question is, what really does that mean? Does it mean that Christ wants us to reflect for some time on the pain and on the agony that he endured on the cross? Does he ask that we try to imagine what that must all have been like for him? No, surely not. Rather, what Christ asks is that we reflect on the reason for the cross. Remember, it was our sin that led Christ to the cross. It was our cursedness that nailed him to the cross. But that's not all. That's not the only thing we must remember. See, we may rejoice also in this, that Christ has forgiven all our iniquities, that we are made forever right with the Lord. And so, yes, so the celebration of the Lord's Supper will fill our hearts with thankfulness. We will remember with every celebration of the Lord's Supper that the Lord Jesus is our Savior, promised to the fathers already in the Old Testament that he is the eternal and only begotten Son of the Father, that he assumed our human nature in which he fulfilled for us all obedience and the righteousness of God's law, and that he bore for us the wrath of God under which we should have perished everlastingly. You remember also that he was bound that we might be loosed from our sins, that he was innocently put to death that we might be acquitted at the judgment seat of God, that he became a curse for us to fill us with his blessing, and that he humbled himself on the cross to hell's deep agony, which wrung from him the cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That God might never forsake us. If you remember, moreover, that he was buried to sanctify the grave for us, that he was raised for our justification, that he was exalted at God's right hand, and that we shall that he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. And we will remember that the shedding of his blood has confirmed for us the new and eternal covenant, the covenant of grace. You hear it, I'm sure. Those words drawn from the form for the celebration of the Lord's Supper, express it most beautifully. So we remember our Savior's death. So we rest in him and have fellowship with his accomplished work. And so we are also asked to proclaim, to proclaim it. 
So the Apostle Paul spells it out. As often, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Ah, yes. So you proclaim that there is no salvation apart from outside of Jesus Christ. Not for you, not for anyone in all the world. So you declare that life, true life, life eternal, is in Christ, in him alone. And that's not all. After all, you don't partake of communion alone. You partake with brothers and sisters in the Lord. So it is that you speak not only to your God and Savior, and you rejoice not only in his love and grace, but you confess also in and through the eating and drinking that you with them, your brothers and sisters in the Lord, belong to the same household of faith. Think of it. You confess not only that you love the Lord. You confess also that you love them, your brothers and sisters in the Lord. You confess the communion of saints. You confess that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, because nothing can separate you from the love which he has for the church. After all, the gates of hell cannot and never will prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. So your joy is in him who loved you and gave himself for you. That brings us to the last point, the fruit of our Lord's Supper celebration. Think of it. When Christ, via the ministry of the office bearers to be sure, places the broken bread and the poured out wine before us. But then he doesn't only want to assure us that his body was offered and broken for us and that his blood was poured out for us on the cross. Oh, to be sure, he does that. But he does more than that also. See, he also wants to assure us that as surely as we taste the bread and cup of the Lord, so sure it is that he nourishes and refreshes our souls for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. You hear it. Christ wants to nourish us and he wants to refresh us. As you know, where there is life, there there is hunger, a hunger for food. You see that in a baby, a baby that doesn't want to nurse, to eat, is a baby that is not healthy, that is not well. Well now, just so it is with the spiritual life. It must, and it does when it is healthy, it must thirst for God, for the living God. 
It wants to feed upon his word. It hungers for fellowship with God. The Catechism explains that. It asks, what does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his poured out blood? The answer, it means to accept with a believing heart the entire suffering and death of Christ and by believing to receive forgiveness of sins. But it goes on to say, but it means more through the Holy Spirit who lives both in Christ and in us. We are united more and more to Christ's blessed body. And so, although he is in heaven and we are on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, and we forever live on and are governed by one spirit as members of one body are by one soul. You hear it? The Father assures us that the sacrifice of Christ was enough it was enough to cover all our sins, enough to lay a solid foundation for the covenant of grace, enough to make us his for all eternity. And see, we, we will experience that more and more as we experience being united with Christ's blessed body more and more. That, as you may know, that being flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, that is sometimes spoken of as the mystical union. See, the way bread and wine not only nourish and refresh, but also in a real sense become one with us. So it is the Holy Spirit who uses the bread and the wine to join us ever more fully, ever more intimately, to Christ. Well now, as you may know, our Savior himself spoke of that. Truly, truly, I say to you, he said, unless, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Now we must not understand those words. You see, Christ is not saying here that, we must, that he must be or that he will be bodily present in our Lord's Supper celebration. That, as you may know, is what Rome makes of these words of Jesus. And Luther didn't really know how he could escape Rome's error. You see, 
Rome hears in the words of Jesus, take, eat, this is my body. Rome hears in those words an announcement that the real, the actual body of Christ would somehow or other be present in the communion bread. But the scriptures nowhere say that. Think of it. Christ, who was bodily present with the disciples when he spoke those words, Christ was saying to them what he says to us today. This, the bread was, it is, a sign and a seal of my body. After all, such is the nature of sacramental language. Well, just so, the Catechism explains. Just as the water of baptism is not changed into Christ's blood, it says, but is simply God's sign and assurance, so too the bread of the Lord's Supper is not changed into the actual body of Christ. Even though the words of Christ, when taken out of context to be sure, could then be understood that way. So when the question is asked, why? Why does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood or the new covenant in his blood? See, then the catechism gives this beautiful answer. Christ has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us that as bread and wine nourish our temporal life, so too his crucified body and poured out blood truly nourish our souls for eternal life. And that's not all. More importantly, says the Catechism, more importantly, Christ wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge that though that we, through the Holy Spirit's work, share in his true body and blood, as surely as our mouths receive these holy signs in his remembrance, and that all his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for our sins. You understand? All of that is assured to us. All of that is signified and sealed to us at the Lord's table. Christ's suffering is reckoned as our suffering. His obedience as our obedience. His paying in full as our having paid in full. And he unites us, that is, he joins us together so intimately that it can indeed be said, we live on and are governed by one spirit. We are brothers and sisters of one household, of one family, even though we are many, and even though we are different in so many ways in personalities, in gifts, in abilities, in interests, in income and output, and you name it. 
Nevertheless, we are one in the Lord. For, as out of many grains, one meal is ground, and one bread baked, and out of many berries pressed together, one wine flows and is mixed together, so shall we all, who by true faith are incorporated in Christ, be altogether one body through brotherly love for Christ our dear Savior's sake, who before has so exceedingly loved us. And I ask and show this to one another, not only in words, but also in deeds. See, that is also the thing our Lord wants to accomplish. That fellowship, that expression and experience of fellowship, as was also expressed and experienced by his covenant people of old when they celebrated the Passover. He wants that to be a reality, something that is really real for us. He wants it to be something we express not only in words, but also in actual deed. Because, you see, he knows therein we will experience blessedness and joy today and every day until he comes again. Praise the Lord. Amen.